Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Masculinity permeates, perhaps dominates, our social, political, cultural, and economic lives. As a way of seeing and being in the world, it is often narrow-minded, aggressive, and oppressive. Toxic conceptions of masculinity are a threat to all of us. That's the bad news. The good news is that they are also social constructions. As such, they can be deconstructed and reconstructed in the service of a healthier world for each and every one of us. Before that work can proceed, we must uh, understand masculinity. We must name it. We must understand where it comes from, what it means, and who is served by its various iterations. Towards that end, today we ask, what does it mean to become a man? I'm joined by Rachel Giza, a journalist and the award-winning author of the book Boys, What It Means to Become a Man. So, let's start with tracing some borders. Sure. How do you conceive of manhood and masculinity, uh, both in its toxic and non-toxic varieties? So we're starting with just a very we're, small we're question. We're getting into, we're we getting, have this habit of beginning sm- with the big questions. Right, exactly. Just a little bit of small talk off the top. Yeah. Um, I think that what I, when I think about manhood or masculinity, um, I think the thing that I'm most interested in exploring and the thing that I most wanted to convey in my work is the idea that it is not a static thing. It is not a mm. fixed thing. Um, it is culturally specific. It has um, bent and been more fluid over time. Um, that definitions of masculinity and expectations about masculinity, um, you know, are often seen as something that is inherent or genetic. That's just the way boys are. You know, boys don't cry, man up, be a real man. All of those kind of all of those ways that we kind of police the borders of masculinity. But in fact, it is a much more fluid identity than than is often than is often understood to be, um, and it's all also an identity that is used in the same way that definitions about womanhood and femininity um, have been used to police people, to keep them in line, to get them to do certain things for certain interests. Um, masculinity is the same thing. And that masculinity and manhood, because it is an identity attached to people who have more power, um, it's, tend- it's tended to be seen as a, as a good thing, that that power that it confers and the status that it confers um, um, is a good or positive uh, thing for, you know, the people that identify with manhood and masculinity. And it certainly can be a good in terms of the status it confers, but in terms of what it does to one's psyche, one's humanity, one's empathy, one's mental health, um, it can often be quite detrimental. So I, mean, I want to pick up on this this idea that we have an identity that it's fixed, that not only um, does it confer benefits, if you step out of line, you're going to be policed back into line. How dare you? Uh, one might think, well, if it confers benefits to men, then why wouldn't you want to be masculine? And yet one of the pushbacks is toxic masculinity is bad for men too. That is a social problem that actually applies to those who are policed into masculinity as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're thinking about it, I mean, how would you characterize it as being a problem for those who identify as masculine as well as those who don't? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a metaphor that's used, this idea called the man box. And mm. it's used by, it was developed by a sociologist in the U.S. called Paul Kivel. And it's used a lot in, in the people, people who are doing work around healthy masculinity and positive masculinity use the idea of the man box, which is basically um, a, a collection of the characteristics and values that one associates with the most 
most sort of traditional and rigid ideas of of manhood. Um, so you know whether that is the uh, sort of a John Wayne model of masculinity. Um, it's like it's the archetypes, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the cowboy. It's the it's the leader. It's the athlete. It's the sexual conqueror. It's the breadwinner. So you know those qualities are being stoic, um, uh, immune to pain, uh, closed down emotionally, uh, sexually dominant, the alpha male, uh, financially successful. Um, so all of those qualities um, um, are sort of seen as the the way that you become a successful man or a real man is is to have those qualities and to live up to those ideals um uh, those ideals are almost impossible right. for every for any man to live up uh, live up to all the time, and even within that box itself, certain men have more or less status that the status within that is fluid as well so if you think about characteristics like race. Uh, racist stereotypes, racialized stereotypes that say that black men, for instance, are better athletes or they're more sexually virile or they're tougher. Um, those attributes were attributes that were part of the underpinning of enslavement, right? It's, mm. the, assu- it's, it's the assumption that a certain type of person has less intellectual capacity and more physical capacity. They're not, they're, they're not deserving of the full benefit of, of humanity and civil rights. Now, in certain circles, those are, and in certain circumstances, those qualities um, that, again, are racial stereotypes associated with certain kinds of people um, uh, confer a certain kind of status, a certain kind of toughness. But those same qualities are also then used to criminalize people, mm. right? There's a reason, you know, when you think about the current conversation in the U.S. about the stop and frisk policies that racially profiled young black and Latino men in cities like New York, the assumption was that those types of young men were more likely to be criminalized. They posed more of a threat. So, so even though masculinity and status is, is attached to things like physical aggression and being strong and tough, if you're the wrong kind of man with those qualities, then you get, then you get penalized. Right. Um, those racial stereotypes work in similar ways, the way that, that Asian men are often seen as not as virile, as, as, as not as strong and not as powerful as being nerds. So you see even within the man box um, that certain men benefit or lose out in different kinds of ways. Likewise, men who are gay um, are not seen as, you know, living up to the, the you know, the values of the man box. Um, this is why a lot of gay male athletes don't want to come out because mm. there's an association that athleticism is a manly quality, but being gay is not a manly quality. There's a sort of a sense that those those two, the, that, that athleticism and gayness can't, can't live together. So, all of those pressures of the man box um, become incredibly limiting. Um, you know, I've mentioned the ways in which, you know, racial stereotypes can play out or stereotypes around sexual orientation can play out. But if one of the aspects of the man box is being stoic, is of never asking for help, of never asking for support, if you are a man struggling with mental illness, um, how do you ask for support? Or physical or illness. Physical illness, right. for Not sure. Not going to the doctor. Exactly, yeah. of course. And we see that playing out, that we know study after study has shown that men don't seek 
medical care and they don't seek uh, psychological care when they need it. Um, the men who m are most likely to adhere to these stereotypes, again, of, you know, masculinity and virility and being a real man, um, they, they tend to experience higher levels of isolation and depression. They're more lonely. Their, their emotional relationships with other men are, um, are not as deep. Um, uh, on, the, on the breadwinner front, if we associate manliness with being able to provide for your family, what happens to men when we have we go into an economic recession? We're seeing wide swaths of of, of men working in traditionally male dominated careers like transportation, so truck drivers, uh, fields like manufacturing or farming, um, who have been told who are not only suffering from economic downturns and automation and and all of the you know the 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 economic upheaval that's occurring right now, but they're also struggling mightily with a sense of their identity being taken away. Mm -hmm. If you associate your sense of worth and value in can you provide for your family and that makes you a real man, what happens when economic forces make that impossible for you? What does that mean for your sense of self and identity if you believe that the only way to be a real man, your only value as a man is to earn money, what happens when you can't earn money? You rail against socialism, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, how dare you try to help us? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is—I mean, this is one I, I won't go too far because it will take us down a rabbit hole. But it certainly intersects with capitalism, doesn't it? And this idea that you know the marketplace mobilizes masculinity to keep people in their place, but also to keep government at bay a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think you can—I think you can understand. Particularly in this moment, um, when you see the rise of, you know, Trumpism, when you see the rise of other populist movements elsewhere, it is very much tied to a very fixed idea of of um, masculine roles and feminine roles. That that you know, there was a period. I mean, I'm old enough that when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, there was a period of more gender fluidity. Um, I'm the kid that was the era of free to be you and me, and um, and and uh, and I think there and it was the rise of feminism. It was an era when a lot more women were working outside of the home, and that that created a lot of social change within families and a lot of openness when it came to certain kinds of of, of policy making. Right, mm -hmm. certain kinds of you know whether that was in the labor force, whether it was around healthcare. You know, it's not it's not surprising when we have these um, you know nationalist governments that come into play, or you know you know populist figures like like a Trump come into power, that you're seeing what gets rolled back are rights around a woman's right to control her own body. Mm -hmm. um, um, you're also seeing a, a kind of, a, you know, there's a lot of this kind of ideology in in opposition to climate change. Um, there is, the, the, I think, the same, the same kind of masculinist um, thinking that says women's bodies belong to men says, well, the earth is ours to do with what we will. We don't have to think about conservation. We don't have to think about protecting the planet. Greed is good. More is better. Control is better. Don't show weakness. I mean, all of that ties into these these bigger forces that are at work. And when you know, I have a well, I have lots of critiques of the market, but one of these is the marketplace will expressly mobilize masculinity to try to sell you things at the same time that they mobilize concepts of femininity to charge women more money for the exact same product. Uh, but uh, there is a certain aesthetic dimension to masculinity that I find fascinating and, and often a little bit complicated. You know, I mean, I, I'm 36 now. 
it's been about 10 years that I've been thinking about the concept of masculinity, probably only seriously for the last five. And I think about, well, you know, I, I see my contemporaries playing to these uh, aesthetic preconceptions. I like some of them too. I recognize they're problematic, um, but they're deeply encoded. So for instance, violent video games. I love violent video games. I play an awful lot of them. Um, I also don't mind reading Harry Potter or um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of feminine stereotypes. I can't even think of any. But, um, but, but the, the circles uh, that I come across, there's this conception that um, it, it is an aesthetic performance that is necessary. And when you critique it, it's as if um, people are trying to take it away from you and people get really nervous and angry and upset. So is there a way we can conceive of masculinity that preserves those pleasures while detoxifying them? You know, can you play Call of Duty and understand the nuances of masculinity at the same time, for instance? Yeah, and I think, I think that's where the most interesting, you know, the work is. And, you know, when it comes to video games, for instance, um, you know, I'm very opposed to any kind of moral panic um, that happens around items of pop culture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hear a lot because I've written about boys. I hear a lot of people come to me and say, the problem is that boys are playing too many violent video games. Um, there's actually no research to indicate that playing violent video games actually leads to real life violence. Um, uh, you know, real life violence is a very complex issue. What we do know is that, um, you know, over time, we continue to see from sort of a peak around the 1970s in North America to a decrease in generalized violence. And also in places like South Korea, where there's a massive engagement mm-hmm. in, in video games, there's not the same level of, of kind of public mass killings that you see in a place like U.S. Um, you know, it seems to be often it's other socioeconomic factors that lead to... To, that lead to those kinds of acts of violence and also access to guns, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, I mean, access yeah. to guns, a lack of access to uh, to mental health supports, and on and on it goes, right? So I'm always uncomfortable when people say it's violent video games or it's pornography that is, that is, that is causing the problem. I think most of us can engage in elements of pop culture that are, um, you know, violent or, or, you know, problematic in some kind of way and still cast a critical eye on them. I think, what, I think the more interesting thing for me is to think about what we assign value to. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Harry Potter. Yeah. And I think that, um, uh, you know, thinking about protagonists in, in kids' books, it's been there are very few books that have um, uh, protagonists of color when it comes to kids books and why is that why why are publishers not making books more diverse mm-hmm. and what does it say to to us when the only heroes are coming our way are still um, a majority white male heroes what does that say about our capacity to imagine um, a, a, a girl of color as the protagonist in a Harry Potter like mm-hmm. series of have you books? have you heard of the book wild card no I haven't it's a, it's a two book series by um, Marie I think Mary or Marie mm-hmm. Lou and I, I recently started reading it. Uh, I think it's techni- it's it's science fiction, but the protagonist is a young woman of color. And I thought well, I picked it up and started reading. And thought I don't think I've ever come across a book like this before. I mean, I know that I've, I assume they exist, but I hadn't come it hadn't come across my desk. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Is that market emerging, though? I don't know. I mean, I think that there is a kind of um, inherited wisdom or some kind of belief that if you that the only books or stories or films that are going to are going to sell are ones that have a white male protagonist, Mm -hmm. for instance. And I think that that's not only a disservice to those who don't share that identity. I also think it's a disservice to assume that. white men only want to hear about themselves that may be true in many cases but i think the assumption is that there is one way of being in our in our narrative and there is a default hero there is a default center of the universe and so i'm curious about you know why why that choice is being repeated again and again and again um risk aversion i think it's risk aversion i think that i mean i think when you see something like the wild success of black panther the movie black panther or wonder woman or Wonder Woman, um, you you sort of think, like, you have people in Hollywood not even buying into cap, not even buying into the market, the thing that 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 should be determining. Like you, you see that you know the the fact that in um, in the U.S. the um, the Latin American market is massive and and they are the largest proportion of moviegoers, and yet very few films are made about those communities. So it's to me interesting what kinds of biases are in place mm. by the people making decisions about pop culture that um, continue to tell the same story over and over again? And how are all of us um, losing out by only having the same story being told to us over and over again? What other perspectives are we, are we missing Are we missing out of? And so, out on. So I think it's absolutely possible to you know, uh, love sports, um, love professional sports. There's there's lots of wonderful things about professional sports. What I question is why we value, we overvalue um, professional male athletes over professional female athletes. Oh, that right. that we have created this idea that that um, the best hockey is played by men and haven't put the same kind of resources into understanding the women's game and and to bringing the women's game to a level where it can be appreciated. I mean, you see efforts in things like the WNBA. um, But, you know, we see sports as being important, but we see fashion as not being as important. Yet fashion is, you know, it's entertainment just like sports. It's a massive industry that employs all kinds of people. It's, you know, in every way, um, it should be measured the same as sports. But because we associate um, fashion with women, we devalue it. We associate sports with maleness and we overvalue it. I think I'm just sort of curious as to why we've placed these values on aspects of our culture. What's what's underneath it? Um, not is it good or bad to like basketball, but why do we think basketball is? Why do we think male basketball is more important than female basketball? I'll, I'll tell you. I went to the Women's World Cup when it was in Canada. I was living in Vancouver. I bought a, a suite of tickets and uh, wildly entertaining. And the Canadian women's team could teach the Canadian men's team quite a bit. Yes. And there's a story, you know, the, 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 the Japanese women's team made it to the final. I mean, they, they got um, defeated quite soundly by the American women, uh, but they made it to the final. They flew home coach. The Japanese men who were, um, uh, had performed even less well, 
uh, flew home, of course, in first class from their tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, and look, 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 look at the U.S. women's uh, soccer team yeah. and their fight for pay equality. And you have, again, the, it's not only that the, the, women, the U.S. women's soccer team is a much more successful team yeah. than the U.S. men's yeah. team. They also are more important economically. They, they actually make more money, um, and yet they're not paid as much. So again, I think that we, we, we imagine that, it's, that we sort of say, well, m- men are better at sports or male sports are better or that has a value, and why don't we value the other? Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling that 99% of the people saying that have never watched women professional athletes. <laughs> I just think they have yeah. no idea what they're talking about. Um, well, well, let's get back to this idea of uh, of uh, of pushing back against those conceptions. I'm particularly curious about how how you've come to understand masculinity, especially in the context of your book. Um, which is something people should read, is uh, uh, the Shaughnessy Cohen Award winner. Uh, You mentioned that your own experience raising a son has been significant in in conceiving of masculinity and manhood. How How does that affect how you think about this? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm a lesbian, so I raise my son with with my partner who's also a woman. And I think what struck me was, um, I, you know, I had spent all these years before I got interested in masculinity, writing about gender issues and writing about feminism and writing around a lot of issues around sex and, and sexual politics. And I hadn't really thought about masculinity in, in, I hadn't really thought a lot about masculinity and expectations around masculinity until we had our son and suddenly everyone wanted to tell me what boys are like. And suddenly everyone was looking at our son and seeing what they wanted to see. You know, it was like a Rorschach test. It's like if he kicked a soccer ball, oh, he's going to be an athlete, you know, And, and, and just the assumption that everything he was doing was being read through a lens of expectations about what was correct and, and what it should be. And Conditioned. Conditioned. Yeah. And so even though our son, who, who is quite sporty, played with sporty type things in Lego, he also had a pretty vast stuffed animal collection mm-hmm. and loved his stuffed animals. And um, he's a very affectionate person. And he had a little food, like a kitchen uh, play set that he played with. Um, and people conveniently ignored <laughs> the uh-huh. things that weren't sports and Lego. And so every time he would play with Lego, there would be, ah, that's all boys. They all like Lego. And I think Lego's great. I think, you know, I, 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 had, I, had, no, um, I had no expectation that our son should, should or shouldn't play with any kind of toy or should or shouldn't be any kind of thing. Mostly as a journalist, I was curious about what people picked up on and what they wanted to celebrate in our son and what they kind of overlooked in our son. And so that got me thinking about, um, you know, how do boys experience the world? And I knew of my own girlhood, the moments and when I was when I was told what it, the moment I was I was given the rules of girlhood. I remember when I was in the ninth grade and my math teacher told me that I actually didn't need to excel at math, even though I was very very good at math, um, because I was going to either get married or become a secretary someday. I remember getting that message. I remember getting the messages from fashion magazines about what I should look like and 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 what I should wear and what was a Attractive. So I remember getting those messages and really receiving them as a rule book to be a, like a, you know, a proper a, a female. 
And so I was curious about what the rule book was for boys and what what these implicit and explicit messages were. And, you know, in again, and, and, and I didn't want to, you know, people often assume that I am arguing against masculinity. And I'm really just arguing against a narrow framework that says masculinity is any one thing and doesn't recognize that, you know, masculinity as is as shifting as as femininity, that there there are different points in our own culture where the rules were more relaxed with men. I would say that, you know, when I started writing my book, um, you know, around 2014, 2015, um, we at this very open, fluid moment. There was a lot of conversations about fluidity when it came to any of our identities, racial identities, mm. gender identities. Um, um, there was this real sense of progress. There was a real visibility around trans and non-binary folks, and that was really changing the conversation. And then, you know, it's not all down to the election of Trump in the U.S., but certainly there was a backlash to this fluidity that came in that came in really hard and really fast. And you saw the rise of figures like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, um, the Gamergate movement. Mm -hmm. You saw all of these movements, pickup artists, all of these movements that were quite reactionary against the idea of fluidity when it came to gender norms and gender expectation. You see this this emergence of people that call themselves gender skeptics who don't believe that that sex and gender are on a spectrum, but really believe if you're a man, you're a man, and you have all of these qualities that are inherent to manliness. And if you're a woman, you have all of these qualities that they don't believe that 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 there that there is any aspect of our gender or sex identity that is that is a social construct. They believe that it's all inherent. And I think a lot of that came about as a reaction to a period of time that became, you know, that, that period of time when people were talking about metrosexuality mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and I, I, I think that we're in a moment right now that is feeling incredibly constrictive and restricting that there is there's there's a reason i think why why a jordan peterson emerged at this particular moment and why his work is so popular i think it is speaking to a lot of fears and confusion and people wanting to have clearer borders that the loss of these borders around these identities i think are really unsettling to people it's uh, when it comes to jordan peterson my greatest fear is that the world will run out of beef But that's that's a different problem for a different, <laughs> that's a different day. Issue. I, I, you know, it's funny is, is if I were if you were to say to someone, you know, gender skeptic or just anyone on the street, I mean, why should a man be this way? Uh, I don't think they've got much to appeal to, other than biological essentialism, which has been demonstrably disproven. So it's nonsense. Or well, that's the way it's always been. In which case, uh, there's not really an argument. There's lots of things that have been one way for a long time that ought not, ought not to be. Um, and then if you were to push back, and this is what I find so utterly baffling, and say, well, wouldn't you want to be more free? Wouldn't you want a broader range of choices? Uh, wouldn't you uh, prefer to be able to say, um, I, I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can uh, read whatever I want to read. I can dress however I want to dress. Instead of saying, well, I, uh, gee, I'd better conform. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, what strikes me as a great irony is that these great skeptics, quote unquote, are the quote unquote free thinkers who, who don't dare um, challenge the norms that police them. 
um, they're, they're hypocrites well, and, of and course, cowards. Yeah. And again, I see this particularly with, um, you know, men in their, particularly men in their 30s and, and men who are fathers, that I would say that um, men who are young fathers now, young children now, have a much more tactile, for the most part, I mean, I'm making a generalization, but have a much more tactile, hands-on, affectionate relationship with their kids, certainly than my father had with my sister and I. And I would say that the the men I know that are fathers that have that kind of relationship with their kids, they want that. They want to be active, involved as. That it is meaningful for them not to be a father in the old sense of you don't see your kid all day, you spend five minutes with them when you come home from work and that's it. They want to play with their kids. They want to look after their kids, cook for their kids, be engaged with their children in meaningful ways. It gives them pleasure. It gives them a sense of gratification of meaning. And so I think what we're seeing on the ground, like, you know, in the actual lived experience, um, in, in, a, sort of in, in, a, in a heterosexual dynamic, I think we're not yet seeing full equality when it comes yeah. to domestic chores. But we certainly are seeing men more engaged in the kind of work that they weren't engaged in a generation ago, even. Yeah. And opportunities and, like parental leave for men, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, like any man I know that's had a child has taken advantage of that, has chosen to step away from the workforce to to be with his child because he finds that a meaningful and gratifying connection. And so I think when we when we normalize or and legislate to allow men these opportunities, um, men are buying into them. I think that that most men now, I think except for those on the extreme, want a partner who is also an income earner, uh, want to have a partner that, uh, that, that is a friend as well as a partner. You know, um, imagine that relationship being equal. They don't imagine no. that, you know, I, the men I know that are, that, are, that are with female partners, imagine their female partner to be their friend, their partner, their equal, someone that they want to share their life with. They don't imagine the domestic realm being a binary where men do one thing and the husbands do one thing and the wives do another. So I think that these opportunities have been seized upon mm. in, in quite a welcome way by, by so many men. I think that people are opting, a lot of men are opting to be different and, and simply perhaps want a bit more permission to, to, yes. to be more in touch with those aspects of themselves. This permission thing uh, to me seems utterly crucial. I mean, uh, that, that part of it is a matter of elite signals people who are in positions, traditional masculine positions or positions of authority, pushing the boundaries of what, what are, what's okay. Um, but also uh, opportunities, I mean actual opportunities like, like paid parental leave that set new norms or even little social – I had a friend in, in British Columbia, and a woman and a man, they, had a, they got married and, and he took her name. Um, people who are pushing back against that are, are creating opportunities. So, I mean, in that spirit, how do we approach remaking conceptions of manhood and masculinity in, in less toxic varieties of such? I think part of it is, you know, I, my work is more focused on boys and young men. And I would say a big part of it is to actually, like, listen to boys and young men. Right. Um, I think a lot of them, and the, you know, the young men and the boys that I spoke to um, talked a lot about um, feeling uncomfortable with being told that they can't cry, that they, mm. that they talked a lot about wanting to have um, intimate 
friendships with other boys, but often felt stigmatized around wanting that kind of connection. Um, they wanted spaces to talk about their feelings. There was a study that I found uh, based here in Toronto, but a, you know, a, pr- a pretty sizable group of young people. It was done by Planned Parenthood Toronto, asking teenagers what they wanted in their sexual education. So, what kinds of what kinds of what kinds of topics did they want covered? And a significant number of boys said they wanted to they wanted to learn about how to be in a healthy relationship and mm. how to be a good boyfriend. So they weren't asking questions about sex. They were asking questions about emotional connection and being a good partner, how to be a good boyfriend, how to connect with somebody. Um, when we actually sit and talk to boys and young men, what comes up again and again and again is that they want emotional connection. They want opportunities to feel vulnerable. Um, they want to be, they want to be seen and understood. And they often find these expectations to be quite oppressive and whether they sort of are explicit in that language. But, you know, I talked to a lot of boys who, who spoke about, the expectation of violence amongst other boys was something that they felt deeply terrifying. The idea that boy culture was about fighting and there mm-hmm. was something sort of like, oh, all boys do that. All boys are aggressive or all boys like to, you know. The testosterone. Uh, testosterone. Yeah, testosterone. Sure. I spoke to so many boys and not just boys who like were um, – gentler boys, but boys who were even part of a kind of alpha type of boys, even boys you would assume would have no problem being, you know, being in a physical space, you know, playing, playing a rough and tumble sport. Um, talk about their perpetual fear of violence, their perpetual fear of having to get in a fight, having to prove themselves through physical aggression. It was not natural to them. They felt scared of that expectation. So I think part of it starts with just listening to boys and young men about how they want to be and creating some space for them to to be more of themselves, not to say it's wrong to like sports or it's, you know, or, or you know, we have to throw out everything to do with masculinity, but rather, rather ima- understanding that masculinity can be a lot more elastic and fluid. I have to, as someone who's been punched more than once, I have to say it's, it's not a privilege <laughs> it's not enjoyable. No. You know, it's 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 so um, utterly masochistic to me that we police these boundaries when they are, I mean, quite literally painful for people. Absolutely, you get nothing from it. My friend uh, Damon Fairless, who also wrote a great book about masculinity called Mad Blood Stirring, has this story. He's a big guy, and he has a story about um, he. There, there was a, a guy in the subway who was being, you know, very provocative and very aggressive and very threatening, and Damon punched him. And his girlfriend, who was now his wife, was like afterwards was like, "What the Why'd heck you did you like? <laughs> yeah. What yeah. like? What did you do? That's not cool. It's not okay." But he said everybody else was like, "Wow, you're the man. You're amazing." And he he writes about his own feelings of like feeling sick to his stomach that he would have reacted in this way, and yet getting all of this um, praise and um, and approval for for doing something that he didn't feel was the right thing to do. That it was that was not the man that he wanted to be but it was the kind of man that gets a lot of acclaim and a lot of respect and his own grappling with his own capacity to be violent and to or to live up to these masculine norms and yet his own realization that living up to that norm was not at all emotionally healthy for him is not at all is is not at all the thing that equips him to be a good partner a good dad a good writer a good thinker a good friend those aren't the qualities that that allow him to be who 
who he really wants to be. I was thinking about this in the context of the Canadian Forces Review and this idea that, well, there aren't enough women in the military in combat positions, for instance. And there was one columnist, I'll let listeners guess which reactionary right-wing <laughs> columnist this was, who said, well, so what? You know, something akin to, well, so what? Women don't want to serve in combat roles. What's the big deal? And, of course, the implication being that men really do, and then that's perfectly normal and natural. And What's the problem with that? Uh, it strikes me as utterly bizarre that we live in a society in which we normalize the idea that men inherently want to be shot at, to put themselves in combat roles in which they might be shot to death or blown up on the side of the road. Um, and women are just different. They don't want to be. And when we confront that, I wonder in thinking, um, you know, how do you dig into something that is so fundamental in the culture and is reinforced by so many different aspects from literature to video games to the way politicians behave to the way who's punching who on the subway all the way down to who's in the trenches being shot at. Um, you know, like, if you are someone listening to this and you start thinking, gee, I don't, I don't know what I think about gender roles. I'm starting to wonder if maybe not they're, they are a bit of a scam. Um, What's your what's your first point of pushing back against that? You see something like this in the, in sure. the column inches, mm-hmm. and you think, "My lord, well, now what?" Well, but I think that I mean, it's such a, the soldier example is such a great example because, of course, um, the idea that men inherently are like this or men are inherently warriors is actually complete fallacy, right? Um, There's a reason why you have, um, you know, cultural um, rules and social expectations around signing up for the war. When you think about the First World War, where there was, um, you know, massive repercussions for the the men who survived that war in terms of what we would now call PTSD, um, um, the kind of, uh, you know, soul-destroying and psyche-destroying violence that they experienced experienced. Lost generation. The lost generation. Very few of the men who signed up, I think, went there with bloodlust, but they were told they were doing it for God and country, and they weren't a real man. And you had, you know, you know, you had people that would um, stigmatize them, socially isolate um, any uh, uh, conscientious objectors, right? So you actually had a lot of social control mechanism that pushed men into battle. When you think about the draft during Vietnam in the U.S. Um, again, you have another situation where you actually didn't have that many um, that many guys who could avoid the draft going and volunteering and signing up. You had to draft them to force them to go to put their lives on the line. We're seeing now with uh, the soldiers who served in um, Afghanistan experiencing horrific levels of PTSD, of, ter- of depression, of trauma. If violence were inherent, if violence were part of, of the makeup, of us, why do we then experience PTSD? Why do child soldiers, why do, you know, 13, 14 year olds, if it's natural for boys to be violent, why do we see such trauma from boys who are forced to become child soldiers. It is not natural to engage in that degree. I mean, it's natural for us to have a level of aggression, a level of anger, whatever. But that kind of militaristic, um, sustained, enduring engagement in violence destroys people, destroys men, and it destroys women. So when people, and that's not to say that there aren't some of us who are incredibly brave. That's not to say that it isn't that there aren't wars and battles that aren't incredibly 
valuable. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that the Nazis shouldn't have been fought. Yeah. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have people who run into fires to rescue people. I'm saying to assume that a level of aggression is natural and normal overlooks all these facts, which indicate that 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 over time, uh, so many men in so many different campaigns were destroyed by battle. We're absolutely destroyed by not just physically, but emotionally destroyed by battle. Yeah, and in my experience, when it comes to those sort of natural inclinations, especially what gets reduced to fight or flight, uh, flight is almost always the smart course of action. <laughs> this is the other thing that strikes me is, I mean, unless you're fighting Nazis, for instance, um, in which case, you know, you'd rather not, I'm sure, be doing that fight. I mean, l- let's let's be honest. The, the plain point is, I think most people who fight would rather not fight. Absolutely. Going to back to the story you just told. Um, you know, if you can avoid it, you would prefer to avoid it. Um, and yet, that cultural programming is a is awfully difficult to resist. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is everywhere. In fact, if anything, perhaps we need more cathartic out to output or cathartic um, opportunities like video games and fewer... <laughs> Uh, people throwing punches at each other in bars. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I think that the, the science is still contested on this again, but there's lots of people who say that, you know, the ability to engage in violent video games or, or in certain kinds of sports are an outlet I for our, 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 our aggression. And I would say it's an outlet for female aggression too. Sure. I would say that, you know, um, you know, I think that there can be some physical differences in what, you know, in, in, in body size and all of those, all of those things. But I think to assume that women don't get angry and women aren't aggressive is, um, is, is false. Of course, women have those experiences and those, and those feelings. Um, what I worry about a lot is how often we harness um, some of those inclinations in certain young men. If you think about, you know, professional sports, when you think about uh, particularly uh, contact sports like like hockey or football, um, understanding now the tremendous impact of a sport like football, mm-hmm. which, you know, treats so many young men and particularly, um, you know, young minority men as though they were just interchangeable um, fodder mm-hmm. um, for battle on the field. And the kind Once of... Again, as the capitalist owners reap all of the uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you see that you see this in fight in 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 the fight to have college players being paid, where you know schools are making a tremendous amount of money off the labor of young athletes um, using their their images in video games, on their names on shirts, all of that. And these athletes are not able to to reap any kind of economic benefit for it. And again, a lot of these players are 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 black and Latino. Um, and then when these players are injured, they are just cast aside as if they um, are worthless. So again, it is a capitalist impulse that 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 takes you know certain men and can 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 through that system some men can rise to incredible amounts of financial success. But there's a far greater number of young men who get you know chewed up and spat out by 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 the funnel to professional sports. It is a, re- a reminder that. Solidarity is utterly essential in all this, isn't it? You know, I I, I was thinking about this recently in, in the context of of, of the what Soden resistance controversy blockades, whatever you want to call it. That debate that there was a divide and conquer tactic that gets mobilized. That well, what about economic development? You know, people trying to set uh, people trying to set individual indigenous rights indigenous rights against economic benefits and so on and so forth. And 
I mean, we see this with gender too, don't we? That there's an, a, this attempt to divide um, along specific lines and to break apart movements that, that might have some solidarity. That someone that might look at that and say, look, this pro- the problem of athletes in the United States is racialized, it's masculinized, it's also a function of, of capitalism um, and, this, and the toxic culture that enables all these things. Um, an intersectional lens sort of helps us understand that. Well, and I think too... Um, Often these uh, these feelings of resentment or fear towards progress, fear of the other, um, are based on this idea that it's we, we are always engaged in a zero sum game. Yeah. That that there's not enough for all of us. Um, it's a kind of greed in every level rampant. If I don't have all the things, then I then I get none of the things. And if I've if I've um, benefited by by no by without any kind of merit if i've just benefited by the accident of my the country i was born in the color of my skin my gender if i have if i have gotten a greater share of what's available then if any any of the tiniest amount is shared more equally then i lose as opposed to thinking what do i stand to gain when 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 power and opportunity are more equally shared when there are more voices at the table how much genius and talent um, have we not given voice to? Um, how much human capacity have we lost because some people have had the lion's share of all the stuff, the power, the access, the opportunities? Um, and I think that's why I wanted to, I mean, I talk a lot about this in the conclusion of my book, that that this backlash towards progress comes from this feeling of, uh, for so many men, I think there's a sense of, a fear of letting go of some of that privilege, fear of letting go of that power, fear of listening and uh, uh, being asked to listen rather than talk um, because they imagine there's no upside for them. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to say to girls and women, go smash the patriarchy, change the gender rules because there's only up. There's, on- there's only things to gain, really. But to say to boys and men, um, maybe rethink some of the privilege that came to you without any benefit. Maybe think about, you know, why you have all the space on the playing fields. Maybe think about, you know, why you still dominate politics. And, and think about what you might gain if, if more people had access to that. And also what it means to step back from, from these rules that, that hinder men from being their full selves. Um, you know, we, we were talking earlier about taking parental leave. Um, so if a man steps off the, 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 the career track, and that is a, that, that can be a real hard thing for some folks to imagine. Um, but what does he gain by having a stronger bond with his kids? Um, what does he gain by, you know, taking, taking a break from the workforce and stepping more into the domestic realm? What does it mean in terms of strengthening his relationship with his partner, with his kids? What does it mean for his emotional health. And I think there's so much upside Mm -hmm. to that, that because it doesn't have a dollar value attached to it, because we don't give a dollar value to um, intimate friendships, to um, being able to be vulnerable, um, uh, to be able to sort of drop some of that that, that mask and that stoicism, um, we don't see it as having value. But there's tremendous, there's tremendous benefit for boys and men challenging these norms and expectation well i mean i could talk about this all day especially as it intersects with all the many systems that we need to rethink but unfortunately we've come to time as always too quickly 
But uh, I will remind listeners that the book is Boys, What It Means to Become a Man, an award winner and an excellent read. Uh, And my thanks to you, Rachel Giza, for being here with me. And uh, to all of you out there, I'll I'll just say this. Uh, Maybe take a minute and ask yourself um, how you became the person you are and and wonder if uh, perhaps it's time to give yourself permission uh, to be whoever it is you want to be. Thanks for listening, as always, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.